Please follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. I read from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and one of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your holy and inspired word. And Lord, now at this time in our service, as we open your word, we ask, we pray that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that you would get me out of your way and that your word would have its good effect in each one of our lives, Lord, as we think about this ever so important topic of unity, this topic so important to you. And Father, I pray that you would Give us eyes to see the truths that you have for us, ears to hear them, and supple hearts to apply them. May we not simply be hearers of your word, but indeed doers of your word for your glory, for the good of this church, for the good of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When most companies, firms, or organizations hire someone, there are clear expectations for those that they bring in as a new member of the organization. So, for example, if you are a college baseball player with long hair and a cool beard, we went to NCAA regional tournament yesterday watching DBU beat TCU, and there were a lot of cool college baseball hairdos and beards. But should one of those players get drafted by the New York Yankees, and there were a lot of really good players, so it's probably going to happen, they would, at day one, have their hair cut shoulder above the shoulder, clean, close shave. That's just expected. No exceptions at all for the New York Yankees. If you're a law student and you love working in shorts and sandals, but you get hired at a high-powered law firm downtown Dallas, I can assure you 
you're going to be trading in your shorts and sandals for tailored suits, polished shoes, and probably carrying a briefcase. What's more, with most organizations, there's a code of ethics that those who come in sign off on, and you're going to be held accountable to that. So again, go back to the New York Yankees. If you're caught taking performance-enhancing drugs, you will be suspended. If, if you're a new lawyer and you, and you are found engaging in obstruction of justice, you will be fired, probably, probably escorted to the front door by security. And while there's obvious differences, you could speak in similar terms when you think of a Christian church. I mean, when someone comes to faith in Jesus, there are new expectations as to how they live. When somebody comes into a local church, because as Christians we're not saved unto ourselves, but we are brought into a new family, and in that new family there are new expectations for how people of God live. Now, to be sure, there's huge, huge differences between the church and a corporation, not least of which this changes that we're talking about within the church are empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? When somebody comes to saving faith in Christ, those expected changes are empowered from the inside out. But the fact remains, while that's true, and while there's all sorts of beauty and wonder and amazement that we could talk about of what God has done for those that He's called to Himself, once that happens, once somebody actually professes faith in Christ, they're baptized, brought into a local church, there is an expectation, a biblical expectation that your thinking, your goals, your desires, indeed your actions change. And that's where Paul's going with our sermon text this morning. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. We are continuing our study right through the book of Ephesians. And I want you to look at chapter 4, and I'm going to begin by rereading verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. Paul begins with the word, therefore, so as to say, everything I'm about to tell you is grounded in what I've already said, and virtually everyone agrees. You read the commentaries, whatever, everybody agrees. This particular therefore goes all the way back to the whole of chapters 1 through 3. And so just think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, because, because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing through the finished work of Christ, because, dear Christian, you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, because you were predestined to adoption, because you've been adopted to a glorious inheritance, because God through Christ broke the power that the world, the devil, and the flesh had you enslaved to, because God made you alive with Christ when you were dead in your sins, because God has 
brought you into his family, even though you were so far off you couldn't even see, because God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, because you're a part of God's new kingdom, because the gospel breaks down all sorts of barriers between all kinds of people, and because Christ's love for us is so absolutely, stunningly amazing that we have to pray to even be able to comprehend some of it, because of all of that, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And there's three things I want us to see about what Paul's doing in this first verse that are actually helpful for our understanding of the rest of the book. First, notice that he refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. And he's already done this, right? This isn't the first time he's done this in this letter. So we already know he's writing from prison, but he slides it in again here as he's beginning this section of the letter where he's going to talk about how we now live as Christians. And you can take this for what it's worth because I have no special insight into Paul's motives here. But I think he adds this reminder that he's writing from a Roman prison as he begins the section on how we live so as to say, walk this way no matter what. Even if your faith lands you in prison, keep living for Christ. No excuses. I'm in prison, he says, and it's worth it. I'm in prison, and I'm still saying this. Second, you might have expected Paul to exhort us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. That'd be very Pauline. But instead, he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In fact, look at it. He doubles down on this. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. I don't need to point out. That's redundant. Redundancy for a purpose. He comes back to it in verse 4 where he'll say, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to Again, your call. And this is all connected with what I was saying a moment ago about the therefore. Paul is grounding all of this in God's work in our lives, right? He's taking us back to our calling, which in Paul's way of using this word is what theologians refer to as God's effectual call. In other words, when, when God calls somebody, it's not like your neighbor you hear out in the morning, he's out there yelling, you're like, what's going on? You look outside, and he's standing out there in his boxers, and he's yelling at Fluffy, his disobedient dog, and Fluffy's like, forget you, I got fire hydrants to go see. It's not like that at all. When God calls somebody, we come to him, right? So, so, So this is taking us back to the doctrine of election, where he started the whole letter. Remember, he spoke of God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He he, he talked about predestining us to adoption as sons, and we see how these things work together. If we were to flip over to Romans 8, verse 30, for example, where we see what theologians refer to as the golden chain of salvation, when Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. The calling here, then, is God's call that effectually draws us to Christ, thus bringing us into fellowship with Him, and thus, as those who have been called and chosen by God, God expects us to live our lives according to that calling. Finally, it's important to see that 
this verse serves as the transition in this letter from the theological section, chapters 1 through 3, to the exhortatory section, or how now we should live, chapters 4 through 6. So, so we could say he's been focusing on the indicative, right? That which has already been done. And now he's moving to focus on the imperative or the command, how we live in response to what's been done. And, and in chapter 4, verse 1, then, serves as the heading for the rest of the letter. And, and in light of chapters 1 through 3, he's saying, walk in a particular manner. And of course, by that, he's not saying strut or walk slow or walk fast or walk slouched. This is biblical idiom for how you live, right? He's saying live in a particular manner. And thus he's saying, because of what I've taught you in chapters 1 through 3, because all of that is true of you for those who are in Christ, then you should walk, you should live in the following ways. And, and, and then he just sort of unpacks this, right? So in chapter 4, verse 17, he's going to say that Christians should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In chapter 5, verse 2, he's going to say that Christians should walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In chapter 5, verse 8, he's going to say Christians should walk as children of light. We don't walk in the darkness. In chapter 5, verse 15, he's going to say walk not as the unwise, but walk as wise. Christians walk in wisdom. See, verse 1 is the big picture, and the rest of Ephesians spells out what it means to walk worthily of our call. And church, it should not be lost on us that Paul's very first point of emphasis here is on unity. That's what this first section's about, all the way down to verse 17. We must walk worthy of our call, and here's how. It says, walk worthy of your call by being eager, being diligent, working hard to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And again, it's striking that this is first, though not surprising. If you think about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, you know he is literally walking to the cross. He's on his way to die, and he knows it, and he stops and he prays. The first half of that prayer, he prays for the 12 minus Judas, so the 11, the apostles. He transitions in that prayer, and then he prays for us. How do I know he prays for us? Because he prays for all who would come to faith through their teaching. That's the church age. That's us. He has one prayer request for us. Do you know what that prayer request is? It's for unity. That's what was on our Lord's mind on his way to the cross. As he prayed, he prayed that we would be one with a like kind of unity enjoyed from all eternity past between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Instructively, then, don't miss that Paul here does not command us to work for unity. He doesn't command us to create unity or to somehow act a certain way where we might bring it about. No, look at the text. Look close command is that we maintain unity. In other words, there was unity long before you were ever brought in. Our role is to maintain it, more literally to guard it. The word in the original is tereo. It has the meaning of keeping, guarding, protecting something. And that's what we're called to do as Christians. 
When you think of all that God has done in our lives, when you think about our calling, our election, our adoption, about being brought into His family, and that He's gone to such great lengths to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, and He's done so much work to make peace. It is not surprising then that the first thing that He, that he says that He would expect of us is that we are to work hard to guard the very unity we were brought into. Church, this is part of spiritual warfare. In chapter 6, he's going to exhort us to wear the whole armor of God so that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. And all you got to do is look at Scripture, and you know one of the greatest schemes that he has against the church of Christ is to get in and cause disunity. And our call is to work together and to stand against that. Our call is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we work hard to protect unity, to guard it as though it's a precious jewel seeking to be stolen by an evil villain. And we do this as individuals, one, think about it negatively, by not being an instrument of disunity, right? Think about our own actions, we probably should ask ourselves, is this unifying? And two, more positively, we do this by working side by side to protect what God brought us into. Our unity, Paul says, is the unity of the Spirit. So it's created by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and it's bound together with peace, the very peace Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, went to the cross to bring about. I mean, go back to chapter 2 for a minute. Look at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2. Paul says, for he himself, that's Jesus, he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one, unity, it's what's going on here, he's made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh, how did he do, what did he do in his flesh? He's talking about the cross. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing a hostility. So this, this peace that he's talking about is brought about through the cross. I love what P.T. O'Brien says about guarding unity, this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I love how he talks about it in his commentary. He says, quote, to keep this unity must mean to maintain it visibly. If the unity of the Spirit is real, it must be transparently evident, and believers have a responsibility before God to make sure that this is so. To live in a manner which mars the unity of the Spirit is to do so despite the gracious reconciling work of Christ. It is tantamount to saying that his sacrificial death by which relationships with God and others have been restored, along with the resulting freedom of access to the Father, are ultimately of no real consequence to us. End quote. Did you hear that? Did you hear what he's saying? Because he's right. He's saying, according to this text, to not work hard at guarding unity is to say that the cross work of Christ is of no value to us. Wow, dear God, may that never be said of any of us. May we be 
a people who work hard to guard the unity and peace that Jesus went to the cross to provide. And see, Paul tells us more about how we go about doing this. In fact, he gives us four virtues that we must work hard at making increasingly true of us if we're going to actually work hard at guarding unity in Christ's church. These four virtues are humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance that flows from love. So let's start with humility That's the first one he's listed, and this one makes sense on the surface, doesn't it? But even more so when you dig into it. Humility is so important to unity, and on the contrary, there's nothing more destructive to unity than pride and arrogance. I want you to flip over with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Helpful passage here as we think about unity and pride. I want to focus on verses 5 through 8, but I want to get us there. So, starting in verse 1, he exhorts the elders. That's the leaders in the church. He exhorts the elders as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God, right? To pastor the flock of God, exercising oversight. That's, that's leading, that's directing, that's guiding the church. He says, don't do it under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not domineering those over in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And he promises the elders, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, starting in verse 5, likewise you who are younger. Now, just be clear, you know, if, uh, if you read the commentaries, they'll talk about um, this is not just like younger men in the church or whatever. He, he's using a dichotomy, the elders and so you who are younger. And so most would say this is, okay, now the rest of the church, right? So likewise, the rest of you be subject to the elders. That is, submit yourself to the elders. So the elders lead. You don't lead the elders. The elders lead the church. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you, so this is what you put on, clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I don't think anybody wants to be on the side of God's opposition. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at proper time He may exalt you. We don't have to exalt ourselves as Christians because we trust that God will exalt us on the last day. We're to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And then he says in verse 8, be sober-minded, watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I have a question for you. Do you think there's any coincidence that Peter connects pride with the devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to pounce? Any coincidence there? I don't. I mean, isn't that what brought Adam and Eve down? Did God really say? Wasn't it pride that led them to put themselves in the place of God, to doubt what God had said, to de-God God, right? To put themselves in the place of God, to stand as judgment over God's Word. Yeah, did God really say? I think we might have a better idea than that. Now, see, there's a reason God hates pride and gives grace to the humble. Pride rises up against God. Pride, at least in our hearts, contends for supremacy with God. I know better. I know best. Listen, the proud 
knows everything, even when they don't. The proud person insists on his or her own way, even when it's not what's best for them, certainly for others. The proud person will fight to save face, even when clearly shown to be wrong. The proud person makes accusations, even when they're not true. The proud person gossips and slanders in an effort to make themselves look better. And you could just go on and on here, and to no one's surprise, all of these things destroy unity, which is why we're called to stand together and guard against such things. It's why when we hear gossip or slander, we don't engage. Go back to Peter's analogy of Satan prowling around like a roaring lion and his connection of that with pride. Think about this. Do do you think it's wise to bring a hungry lion into your own personal existence? Does that sound like a good plan to you? Would you knowingly say, hey, kids, i got a great idea. This big hairy fella, he stands about this tall. His name's Simba, and he's just going to come and shack up with us for a few weeks. Does Does that sound like a great idea to you? Right? I mean, why is it that when you watch Animal Planet and they have one of those shows where somebody owns a lion, that people are surprised when eventually it turns and pounces on and devours its owner? And the rest of us are like, hey, moron, right? It's a, it's a lion. It, it's a wild animal. It's an apex predator, top of the food chain. Why in the world would you be surprised that it devoured its owner? And if we know Satan uses pride as one of his chief tools to destroy unity and devour churches, then why do we so often invite it right in, stroke its mane, and then act surprised when we get devoured? Church, nothing is more destructive to unity than pride. And on the flip side, nothing promotes unity like humility. And I trust we'd all agree there's no better example than the Lord Jesus here. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You probably know this passage well. Philippians chapter 2. Here Paul says, so if there's any encouragement, by the way, these if clauses here are in the original uh, assumed to be true. So you could translate them, since there's encouragement in Christ… And since there's comfort from love, and since you already have participation, fellowship, koinonia with the Spirit, and since there is affection and sympathy, he says, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. Watch all the words for unity here, right? And if we were had time to go up to chapter 1, he's already talked about being of one mind. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. So don't act in arrogance and pride. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I think C.S. Lewis was spot on when he said, the essence of humility is not to think less of myself. Well, I'm a loser. I'm terrible. That's actually pride a lot of times because we're just like, come on, somebody tell me that's not true. I want to hear some good stuff about me. He says, the essence of humility is not to think less of myself, it's to think of myself less. Isn't that what he's saying here? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, 
This is, the, this is the exhortation here. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now he's saying, think like Jesus here. And he tells us how Jesus thought, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself, didn't he? Being found in human form, he humbled himself a step further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do we say? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. At the right time, God will exalt you. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, think about that. How's that for unifying? right? Put the needs of others above my own? Live with an others-centered mentality? There's a deference that we're being called to that promotes unity among the people of God. And and don't worry, next week we're going to see very clearly that this doesn't mean we're wishy-washy okay? This, this, this isn't giving in everywhere for the, for the sake of keeping everyone happy. For, for in this same section that we're going to cover next week, we're going to see that church leaders, pastors, are to equip the saints so that we can be unified, grow in maturity that he describes as not being tossed to and fro by all sorts of crazy doctrine, okay? So, so this isn't being wishy-washy on truth that he's talking about. This, this is not a call to water down the doctrine of the church. This is a call to forsake our own preferences. It is a call for us to put the goods of the good of others above our own. And you can see how unifying this is, right? Have you ever seen a humble man get offended? I haven't. Have you ever seen a woman of great humility being divisive? in a church. I haven't. You know why? Because she's too busy thinking about other people. She's too busy focusing on how she can serve them, not angry about ways she hasn't been served. And we could go on and on here, but we do have to keep going because closely tied to humility is the word the ESV here translates as gentleness. And I say closely tied because in the adjectival form, these are the two words that Jesus uses to describe himself in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly, gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this word gentle is the word that some of our older translations used to take as meek, all right? And we probably are doing good in our newer English translations, not to take it that way just because of that word being hijacked the way it is in the common American vernacular. So, for example, if you look at the new Oxford American Dictionary, meek is defined this way, quiet, gentle, and easily imposed upon. The example of sentence given is, I used to call her Miss Mouse because she was so meek and mild. Now, we know that can't be what this word means biblically, since Jesus used it of himself, who, yes, put the needs of others above his own, but who can also be found 
flipping over money changers in the temple and grabbing a whip and driving out animals and yelling, you're making my father's house a den of robbers, stop it. Right? Beyond that, this word is used in 2 Timothy 2.25 for pastors, the exhortation to correct opponents with gentleness. So, so it can't mean being a pushover because there's real correction, correction of opponents of the gospel, no less. But there's a way that you can do this that would be described as gentle. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in transgression, you who are spiritual, that's you Christians, you who are filled with the Spirit, should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. And so again, you're dealing with some difficult stuff in situations like this. So there's nothing weak here. A a wallflower content to sort of hide in difficult times will not cut it in fulfilling this word. No, there's a component of doing something difficult, but doing it in a way that is gentle. And see, this is important. This word gentleness has to do with one's attitude and actions toward other people. Uh, You'll often hear a biblical definition for this word, and I think it's a good one, biblical definition for this word gentle or meek as power under control, power under control. When we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was in seminary, we got to go out to Churchill Downs where they run the Kentucky Derby. And these thoroughbreds are some of the most amazing animals I've ever seen. And if you're in the stands, the ground rumbles as they're coming down the home stretch. It is amazing. If you get close to them, their muscles are just bulging. I mean, they are built like the greatest bodybuilder could never dream of being built like. And and they stand there, and their muscles just ripple, and yet a little girl can walk up and pet the horse's leg because they're gentle, right? There's power under control. And it's a great definition here for what Paul's talking about. There's strength here, but it's tempered with self-control. And this is then intimately connected with humility and patience, though neither one of those words quite get at what this is talking about. This meekness, this gentleness, flows from a profound trust in God. I I like what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says trying to describe this word. He says, meekness is essentially a true or biblical view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek or gentle is the one who is truly amazed that God and man could possibly think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do, end quote. I think that's helpful. And so just think about how this promotes unity. Gentleness doesn't go around just blowing people up, right? Even even when people are wrong, it's not just this pulling out the Uzi and just going to town. Gentleness is not like that mean dog on your street who snarls at all the kids who walk by. Gentleness is strength under control. Like Jesus, there is a willingness to engage someone in error, but to do so with a demeanor that's winsome and Lord willing could be used by God to woo them in. Gentleness promotes unity, and so does patience, which is where he goes next. I mean, just think of the opposite. 
how much do you enjoy impatient people? Just be honest. Maybe more to the point, how much do you enjoy being around people who are impatient with you? You know the answer. We don't. Such people don't draw others in. They actually push people away. And if you have a church where you have people that are actively trying to avoid each other, you don't have a unified church. On the other hand, patience is endearing. Patience draws people in. Patience is actually acting like our Heavenly Father who, in what's almost the clearest statement He gives about His own character in Exodus 34, describes Himself this way, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, it's patient, long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love. Anger, sinful anger, outbursts of anger are like flaming darts directed right at the unity we're called to protect. And I agree with Clinton Arnold, who says that patience, long-suffering, is the great antidote to anger. A friend of mine uses the analogy here on fireworks with long fuses. We're coming up to the 4th of July, and some of us parents are dumb enough to buy fireworks for our kids. And one of the most important things with fireworks with kids is long fuses, okay? Long fuse means you have a long time before the explosion goes off. Short fuse means you have a very short window before the explosion goes off, and usually a short window before an explosion goes off, and it doesn't take too long before there's a lot of pain to the body because the explosion takes off a finger or injures or something else. In church, we are called to have long fuses with one another. On a consistent basis, the New Testament reminds us how patient God has been with us, so as to say, you must be patient with one another. Consider the Lord's patience with his disciples. I mean, when you study the Gospels, I trust you see it sort of like I do. They're, they're a bunch of nitwits, aren't they? Much like us. And he's so patient with them. Consider his patience towards you when you were in your unbelief. I mean, he could have just written you off. That would have been perfectly appropriate. Consider his patience with you now, if you're in Christ, this side of conversion. How many times do you still step in it? How, how many times do you still find yourself falling back into that besetting sin? And yet he's patient with us, isn't he? He's so kind. And thus is those who the Lord has shown such great patience. How inappropriate it is when we are impatient with a brother or sister in Christ. If we want to work hard at guarding unity, then we need to work hard at putting on patience. And finally, we need to work hard in the realm of forbearance. And I want to just say there's a difference between forgiveness, something Paul will get to later in the chapter, and forbearance, what he's talking about here. Sadly, a lot of times they're conflated and it causes a lot of confusion. Forgiveness must occur when someone sins against you. Forbearance is different, and this is very important. Forbearance has to do with being willing to forbear, to bear with, to step over differences. And let's be honest, a lot of what drives us crazy about other people are not sin issues, but differences, preferences, idiosyncrasies, even convictions. And so forbearance is closely tied to humility because it says, you don't have to be just like me. 
right? You don't have to think about things exactly the way that I think about them. Forbearance recognizes that there are countless areas neither addressed nor mandated in Scripture, and even though I personally might have strong convictions on something not mandated in Scripture, like maybe political views, parenting styles, educational preferences, to name a few, I'm not going to force my convictions on you, and we're certainly not going to divide over them. And we're going to dig into that more in a couple of weeks. For now, let me just say there's a reason that in our mission statement of this church's constitution, we say that one of the ways we seek to fulfill our mission is by, quote, facilitating biblical forbearance toward one another in all areas, neither addressed nor mandated by scriptures. We give some examples, family planning, schooling choices, holiday practices, we say etc. because there's so many more. But listen to our purpose statement. We want to facilitate biblical forbearance so that the gospel and its proclamation will remain primary. We start fighting about secondary and tertiary issues. We're not going to be focusing on the gospel. As we live life together, as we labor side by side in the gospel, there will be all sorts of areas where we see things differently, where we would personally do things differently. And we must forbear those differences so that we maintain unity and are able to stay focused on the mission Jesus has for us. So, here Paul's been teaching us that Christians guard unity, and he grounds it, showing us the unity we came into. Look back at the text. We're almost done, wrapping up. Verses 4 through 6. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many times does Paul use the word one here? Seven. Seven times. And I'm not pointing out seven to say that he's using numerology. We studied Daniel, and Daniel regularly uses numerology. Study Paul closely. He almost never does. In fact, he probably never does. So that's not the point. The point is he's using this multiple times for emphasis. He's like a good teacher or a good coach that keeps going at the same thing that's important because he wants to drive it home. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, one, 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 one church. It's all about unity, he's saying. And don't miss that we see the Trinity here. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. And of course, there's no greater example of unity within diversity than the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons of the Godhead, all equally God, but each having different roles, one glorious unified whole. And as we are brought into fellowship with God, we're brought into this unity. In fact, by the converting work of the Holy Spirit, we're brought into, he says, one body, and thus we share one hope. There's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and one faith in Him. He says, I'm the only way, right? One baptism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling in perfect unity from eternity past. And so, just go back just a second to Jesus' high priestly prayer that I pointed out earlier. 
chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, talking about the apostles, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that, here's his prayer, they may all be one, just as, listen to this, this is the unity he's praying for, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. That is amazing unity. And that's the unity we've been brought into. And brothers and sisters, we're called to live lives worthy of our calling, and a key part of that is working hard to guard the very unity we've been brought in to enjoy. And as we think about how to do this, I submit to you that it goes back to the therefore. See, we transition to the exhortatory section of Ephesians, but if we fail in the coming weeks to just keep going back to the therefore, we're going to misunderstand the second half of this book because this letter, like all of Paul's letters, was written to be read from beginning to the end. And so if you just study these exhortations without remembering what it's grounded upon, you're going to get into all sorts of works righteousness. You're not going to have a Christ-centered understanding of these things. So here, if we want to work hard at fighting for unity, we need to work hard at remembering chapters 1 through 3. We must remember the gospel. You must remember who you were. What did you bring to the table? According to Paul, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. A slave to the devil, the world, and the flesh, right? We didn't bring anything into the table. There should be humility because God in His kindness, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Our salvation, if we're in Christ, is all of God all of his kindness. And so we want to think about what he's done. We want to think about what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, I would exhort you, look to Christ now. Look to Christ today. Trust in him. For believers, we look at those things. We're reminded of those things. And we want to say and we want to live just as what we're going to sing. Jesus, thank you. Right? Jesus, thank you. What more can I say? We want to say, take my life and let it be. We want our lives to honor and glorify Christ who has gone to such great lengths to bring us into his family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, as we sing and reflect upon these truths, Lord, I do pray that you would remind us of chapters 1 through 3. I pray that you'd remind us of the gospel. I pray that you'd remind us of your kindness to us. And I pray that we would never get tied up and twisted and think that we're somehow living to earn your love, but we're living out of the overflow of that. So we pray for your help. We pray that you would grow us, make us the people that you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.